This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Save time and money using BrewBy5 production software at your craft brewery. BrewBy5 software is a simple and affordable solution for tracking daily production, managing inventory, planning production, and compiling your federal reports. Learn more at fx5solutions.com or by calling 720-638-4958. BrewBy5 production software, brewery management squared away. Hi, everybody. It's John Hall. It is mid-April. I'm in Minneapolis for the Minnesota Craft Brewers Festival, which is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, who also runs this podcast, as you very well know. Uh, I mentioned it's mid-April because I also wanted to mention that there is a winter weather advisory and small blizzard warning uh, that has popped up in this area, proving that winter just will not let us go. Fortunately, we are warm and safe inside of CityWorks, which is this massive bar, 90 taps, uh, right downtown in Minneapolis, uh, near all the stadiums. Uh, it does a great sports bar crowd, but it also serves really great beer. It doesn't have your typical uh, sports bar drafts. And one of the beers that's on offer right now is Abraxas, and I'm sure that a whole bunch of you just got that warm, tingly feeling by the mere mention of that. Uh, of that beer, and I'm, I'm usually drinking lagers during this, but I decided that since my guest is Phil Wymore, the owner and brewer and founder of Perennial, uh, it was the right beer to have. So, Phil, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, uh, do, you, do you spend much time in this city? You guys distribute here. This is only my second time here. I came uh, for the launch about two years ago, and, uh, and now I'm back. How many states, how old's the brewery, how many states you guys have? Brewery is uh, on seventh year, and uh, we are in, I believe, fourteen states. Okay, you believe you're not? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely. It's either fourteen or fifteen. I, I just can't remember by the last count. Yeah. What was the original plan for the brewery? Like, what was your hope? Uh, you know, I, I guess it was a little bit more open-ended. You know, was it the uh, I guess the adage of you know think think about this with the end in mind. It was more like, well. Here, here's here's the great adventure. Let's let's see where it leads. Um, and so, you know, and I and I think that, you know, being open ended about it was a, a good idea, considering how dynamic our industry is, and uh, you know, just being able to be flexible with with what we do. And I and I think that, you know, if you looked at our brewery now and you looked at it, you know, seven years ago and what we were trying to do then, that you know. It's, it's still there's still a lot of similarities, but we've just you know found uh, more identity. We've learned more from the market. We've learned more from friends and collaborative partners and things like that. And uh, you know, I, I guess the goal in mind you know, when we first started was to uh, you know do some sessionable Belgian style beers, which we still have some you know, vestiges of that in our portfolio. Saison um, de and Hommel beer and Southside Blonde. Uh, and then we also, um, you know, wanted to do some barrel aging too, which I think we're more well known for amongst at least the beer geek uh, contingent. So. But does that drive the business these days? Is it the barrel aged stuff that's driving the business? I would say it drives our brand quite okay. a bit. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's uh, the majority of our, our revenue. 
although I would like to try to increase the percentage of what we do uh, in that direction as, as we continue to move forward. Is, is, is that the way? So I, let me back up just a little bit because I do want to get into to how you drive uh, business going forward. But seven years ago was such a different time in the American beer industry. Like you could open up your doors and you could have wild and crazy ideas. Or you could say, you know, we're going to be the anti-brewery. We're going to be the X, Y, and Z brewery. And it's so much harder these days. More people are doing it, but now they're really sort of dialing in on what they want to be and sort of the gimmick. And as opposed to what what almost sounded like scattershot is what you. If I'm wrong on that, but like seven years ago, it sounded like you kind of had a, a catch-all approach and let's see, let's see what happens. You couldn't do that today if you wanted to. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I think people have a lot more focus out of the gate, or at least they should. Um, you know, there's a multitude of you know, types of people that open open breweries, but I, I think a, you know somebody's reading the market is perceptive and knows what they're doing should have some specialization, some focus on what their approach is, what their vision is. Um, you know, we had some of that, and we've evolved as we've gone along as well. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, for us it's kind of, you know, maybe we worked some things in reverse. You know, we didn't come out of the gate making IPAs and Pilsners and things of, of that ilk, but now we're, uh, now we are doing of those. Of that ilk? <laughs> wow, all right, that's, that's, a, that's a tough word to throw in there. Yeah. Uh, well, is there contempt in your voice as you say that? Oh, you know, pro it's probably just a misuse of uh, you know, I, I, I guess we were doing more, you know, we, we kind of had a reputation of being more more Belgian style and not really doing anything that was, you know, German or English or Czech or anything yeah. like that. And uh, now we've uh, embraced embraced that more, but, but specifically embraced it. You know, we're not, we're not doing, you know, a Doppelbach, uh, not a love Doppelbachs, but, you know, we're, but, you know, a German Pilsner, for instance, yeah. is something that uh, speaks to us and uh, we enjoy drinking and I think our our fans uh, also enjoy too. You mentioned the word identity before, and it seems that beer is personal, and I've talked about this on the show before, and certainly in articles, but beer is so personal for people, and that they want to connect with the beer that they're drinking, the brewery that makes it, and uh, the brewer who works for that brewery. There, there's so many of these personal connections, and it, it's not just simply enough to have a brand that's out in the marketplace anymore. Like There has to be some sort of ethos behind it. There has to be some sort of, uh, of story that you tell, and, and I think that some of the brewers that have been successful uh, in the last couple of years, especially in growing their business, are the ones who have told uh, these stories. And, and, I'm, and I'm curious from your perspective of uh, what is the identity of the brewery these days, and how has it changed? And, you can evolve over time, right? I mean, it's it's what you wanted to be seven years ago. You don't have to be now, but you do have to have the, the, the it was the, the presence of mind to recognize who you are in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, you know when it, it seemed like the wild west uh, seven years ago when we you know when we started, and uh, I mean even you know the barrel aged stouts that we seem to be known for. Uh, you know, it was the very first time we released one. It was really eye-opening because you know the concept of people maybe lining up for those things and for those things to have trade value and for there to be mules and bottle limits and, and all of these things were, were uh, things that we all learned on the fly in one day. Uh, and you know, and not that we became experts in one day. It became apparent that 
you know, regulations had to be put in place in that one day that, you know, moving forward, okay, we must get better at this or it's going to be um, chaos every time we try to try to release a, a beer like that. What was um, the first? Uh, Barrel Age Abraxas was, okay. was the first one we did. And uh, we sort of arbitrarily decided to do a six-bottle six limit the day we released it. And uh, it actually that actually kind of worked, but we moved away from uh, arbitrary limits after that and started ca counting people in line and uh, you know, deciding you what... people who were coming back around and just... Well, that time it worked out pretty well, except there were, I mean, you know, there were people hiring mules to stand in line and we were like, we had no idea that, that any of this was uh, was a thing, you know. Um, but uh, I, I guess the point with identity uh, is that, you know, things like that have informed us a lot. Um, you know, we, we might decide, hey, we also like making uh, wheat wine and barley wine and uh, Belgian triples and things like that, but those styles, for whatever reason, don't seem to be as, as sexy. Um, you know, at least in a 750 sitting on a shelf at a reasonable price and it's well made. And so, you know, if a beer of ours isn't selling very well, we have to decide what we're going to do next year when we want to make this beer again. You know, it's... Uh, so what we've done with certain beers like that is we only do a barrel-aged iteration of it. We don't do a non-barrel-aged version of it, and that kind of takes care of itself. But then you don't get much volume or revenue out of it, and you have to you know, kind of find other ways to make money um, as a business, too. And keep the, yeah, keep the, keep the doors open and keep the bills paid. And so, um, so I guess our identity has evolved in the sense that uh, you know we came out of the gate kind of saying, you know, hey, let's just focus on all these very specialty things, and we're not really going to do much volume beer. Even these uh, sort of sessionable Belgian beers that we did it was kind of more just to have some draft presence around St. Louis, and it'd be really cool to have a tap handle this awesome restaurant. That that sort of attitude, and um, you know, we'll just really focus on filling as many barrels as we can and doing these other things. You know, and now what we find is that we're actually, you know, starting to can our beer and trying to get more sell-through on some sessionable beers, um, and try to get more presence that way as we continue to grow this barrel program um, and doing other, you know, the other high-margin things that we do too. So our identity has has changed, and that we're kind of growing all these different things a little bit more. Is it a tough sell for? The Uber fans, for the geeks, for the nerds, for you know the folks who line up outside of the brewery who want barrel aged Abraxas or who want Slumber, who want you know these, these really cool things that, that you guys are doing. It, it, is it tough to get them to come and drink a Pilsner or an everyday Belgian triple? Or because you, for better or for worse, you are sort of known in those circles as the makers of these big boozy stouts. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we try to uh, we try to encourage it by just having people come and pick it up. You know, and it's yeah. Like, well, you know, you don't have to buy another beer of ours uh, to drink on site when you come pick these things up. But uh, hey, if you're already at the brewery, I mean, and you're a fan of other beer, you might as well. Um, you know, but is we, that a is that a tough sell? Like, do do like, do people just come in and get what they? think that they're supposed to get? Some people do. I mean, it's it's a blended sort of customer uh, base. I, you know, some some people uh, support us all around, and some people just just want the high value, high trade value kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, that's okay. You know, there's nothing you can really do about that. And uh, and and I also think that's okay in the sense that I still want that that person to be interested in what we do. 
if, if, the, if this is the only thing that they're interested in that we do, um, I take no offense to that. You know, it's uh, I think they might be missing out on some other cool things that we do too. But that's that's okay. When you talk about um, so you talked about new packaging, you guys are now canning because everybody has to can. We are, and uh, and yeah, <laughs> the second part, everyone has to can. Um, there was a little bit of resistance uh, at first. You know, we were you know a year ago exploring getting a 12 ounce bottling line to still sort of meet this um, you know this packaging problem. You know, uh, you know, I think we took the 750 model as far as we could. It was a sort of entry level, you know, one type of packaging line uh, for a small brewery without a lot of means to buy several different packaging lines. Um, you know, we had to make a choice, and so we chose the 750, and that, that fit us well for a lot of things coming out of the gate. But you know, as uh, as beer uh, con- consumption has evolved uh, in the last you know six seven years, you know, I think we took that model as far as we could. And we found that there's a lot of styles that just simply don't sell through in that package, and uh, you know, that beer might be perfectly good, but it just needs a different package. Yeah, and so. Uh, our, you know, our Saison, Saison de Lee, um, it's a year-round beer that we make. That's now in four-pack, 16-ounce cans. Uh, we do, uh, we're doing two kettle sours this year, one called Hopfen Tea, which is a tropical tea, Berliner Weiss, and then a sort of a um, margarita-inspired goes called Suburban Beverage. And okay. We've done both these beers for a few years now uh, in 750 format all the way up until this year. This year they've been converted into 16-ounce, uh, four-pack cans. Uh, we're also canning three different dry hop saisons in a series that we're calling Prism. Um, yeah, so, uh, and, and we're also canning Pilsner and IPAs that we're just doing across our bar, not for distribution currently. Um, do you expect to see those traded? <laughs> I doubt they'll be traded much, maybe as a uh, uh, an extra in yeah. a trade or something like that. Um, you know, they're really meant to be everyday drinking beers that are good value. Uh, and we like to think that all of our beers are good value, even if you're, if you have a barrel-aged stout that sells for, you know, 30 to 40 bucks or whatever, you know, we still think that there's value there. Sure. And, uh, you know, if, if there wasn't, there wouldn't be, a, you know, people showing up to buy it. But, um, yeah, I, these are, these are, the canned beers are meant to be everyday type of drinking beers that, that provide good value. So I, I think because of that, they won't be highly tradable. Where, where do you fall though? Are, are, is it flattering? Is it frustrating when your beers are traded and sent off and people are making, you know, or they're selling, they're reselling? Is there a difference in your mind? It's a double-edged, double-edged sword, I think. I, I, I think it's cool that uh, people want to, you know, that, that people, that there's demand and there are pe- our beer ends up being traded to locales that are, I would never expect our beer to reach. That aspect is is cool. You know, someone in some market that we don't distribute in is now drinking this beer and opening it at a bottle share, and you know, ten people checked it in on Untapped. That's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> what's not so cool, I think, is just you know the aspect that um, you know one person might hire three three or four people to go stand in line and try to hoard you know the allocation and prevent you know maybe other people that. Uh, really just want to drink the beer yeah. you know, from getting it and then you know try to flip it for as much money as they can that's that's a real bummer uh, I don't think there's a whole lot you can do to police it you know we discourage it uh, especially with our society members we have a, you know, a, a society as well um, but 
yeah, not much you can do about it. I, I don't like it, but I don't I don't know how you uh, exactly police it. So I want to uh, jump around a little bit. Um, I, I mentioned before uh, we started recording, so I'm reading, or just finished reading, Josh Noel from the Chicago Tribune has a new book that's coming out this summer uh, that's all about Goose Island. And it's sort of the, the rise and fall of, uh, of, of Goose um, uh, from the early days through the sale to AB to, to where they are now. And what was striking to me was how many brewers that we know and, and respect actually filtered through there um, and filtered through the, 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 the many breweries that they had over the years. And you were one of them. What's Goose's role in craft as far as as far as you're concerned? And, and, and more importantly, like, how much did working there shape where you are today? Yeah, it's uh, Goose Island is a, a highly important brewery in, uh, in the American craft uh, story. Um, you know, I kind of used to compare it to sort of like the college basketball coaching tree, you know, Bobby Knight's guys, uh, you know, like Coach K at Duke and yeah. you know, Tom Izzo and these other guys that sort of spin off and then all their assistants become great head coaches at uh, other other programs. Um, I mean, I won't even try to rattle off a list of all the uh, the people that went through Goose Island that I know of just because I, I know there's so many that I'll leave a few out and I don't want anybody to... Uh, we also only have 45 minutes on yeah. the show, so yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an incredible... It's a uh, deep list, yeah. It's a very deep list. Uh, even you know, in the three years that I was there, from 2006 to 2009, um, you know, I worked with a lot of people that are now uh, either running other people's breweries or started their own, and they're, they're, they all tend to be breweries that are doing uh, really great work. And uh, you know, that was a fun era to be there too. Um, <clears throat> it was a you know, few years before their sale to ABI, but it was a very high growth period and it was also a sort of a big brand diversification type period as well um, <clears throat> excuse me for instance you know when I came in in 2006 we were sourcing maybe a, or filling maybe a hundred barrels of uh, whiskey barrels you know bourbon county stout yeah by the time I left three years later we were filling something like a thousand and I, who knows? They, I think they do over five thousand now, or something like that. It's insane. Yeah, it's it's their, it's, their barrel space that they have in Chicago is. Uh, I don't know if you've been to it. I now, have. Maybe. It's enormous. It's like the scene from Raiders, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, at the very end, where they say, "Well, where are you putting it? It's a safe place." What does that mean? It's a safe place. <laughs> and they cut to that shot of the warehouse that just goes on forever. Yeah. That, that's what that barrel house feels like to me. It goes when I, when on I go there. and on yeah. forever. Yeah, it's it's really incredible to see. Um, yeah, so I was there at a really interesting time, and there was also an innovative time too. So Greg Hall, um, you know, former brewmaster of Goose Island, he um, really wanted us to be more innovative. You know, at the time, you know, I think Goose Island, you know, in, in the mid two thousands, was really known for you know its core brands, you know, Honkers Ale and IPA and three one two, and then uh, you know they did this really cool thing, Bourbon County Stout, that was collecting dust on shelves and for uh, four-pack 12-ounce bottles at $20 uh, only in Chicago. Yeah. And, you know, just that, that tells a story right there, you know, that where demand is gone for, for certain things. But, but Greg really wanted to do something beyond that, too. And so that was, when, you know, when I was there, uh, you know, under Greg's uh, uh, guidance, you know, we brought in our first wine barrels uh, to do, you know, mixed fermentation, 
sour type of beers too. So uh, that's when Sophie and Juliet and Madame Rose were all developed. And uh, that was a really exciting time. It was the first time the brewery had really worked with fruit like that and been racking beer into barrels. And, you know, was, I mean, we were uh, at that time inoculating beers with Britannomyces, you know, uh, Matilda, for yep. instance, is a, a really, really, really nice, yeah, yeah, exactly, really great beer. But uh, using, you know, lactobacillus or pediococcus or anything else that, you know, could be really add a sour component was, was not something that had been done there before. And um, so it was a really exciting time. And, and you know, even outside all, all the innovation, um, in the time I was there from 2006 to 2009, the brewery grew from about 50,000 barrels of production to 100. And so that kind of leap took a lot of... Uh, a lot of construction, expansion. It was a war zone half the time, and uh, it was a big growth period. And it was a it was a great time for me to be there. I, I was fortunate to be promoted to uh, cellar manager, and I got to take on a lot of expansion projects and learn a bit about you know how to grow the brewery and repipe the brewery, at least from a process standpoint. And um, that was definitely. Uh, influential to me and gave me a lot of confidence in terms of saying, hey, maybe I, I could do this. You know, maybe I could start a brewery. And had, had you thought about starting one before working there? Like, was it an inkling? Not before starting there. Uh, during my time there uh, was kind of when the light bulb went off and I, I thought, you know, hey, I'm going to start a business plan and um, maybe try to give this a go. And, you know, and, and that was kind of, you know, the, the idea of Perennial from its inception was to try to do something that was sort of like all the specialty stuff that Goose Island was doing without all the volume brands. Yeah. And to some extent, that's, you know, that, that's still uh, held true. So. What I found interesting was early on, you, or earlier in this conversation, you were talking about wheat wines and barley wines, and then you mentioned Belgians, and then you said um, these styles that are not very sexy. And, and I find that when you talk to brewers and you talk about Orval, and, and again, I, I, I'm going to encourage everybody to go, when, when Josh's book comes out, uh, to, to go pick this up, but it talks about the story of um, uh, Greg uh, thinking about Matilda and trying to, to come up with a uh, an, an homage to Orval and using Britannomyces and, uh, uh, in ways that hasn't you know that hadn't been done uh, in the U.S. before. It, it's commonplace today, but it was sort of revolutionary back then. Um, and, and added some romance to it, but even still these days, when you when you talk to, to certain beer drinkers, um, there's not this excitement about triples. People don't necessarily get excited about MBLs. There, there's a respect, uh, you hope, but there but there's not the there's not this giddy excitement as there as there is for boozy barrel aged imperial stout. Um, so as somebody who likes those styles and somebody who wants to, who does make those styles and has a respect for those styles, like, is that frustrating? Do you want to grab people sometimes to be like, yeah, but pay attention to this? <laughs> yeah, you know, like I said, I, I think our reaction uh, to those beers like that uh, that we used to produce that did not sell very well was was a bit of a bummer. Um, you know, we even you know had won a, our very first Great American Beer Festival medal was for our uh, wheat wine heart of gold. <laughs> and um, we're like, wow, I guess we're not going to make this beer anymore. It's, it's a real bummer. But, you know, like I said, the solution for us was, well, let's just make a small amount of it and barrel age it because we know we know that will go over well, at least with this subset that we want to appreciate it. And we still um, can then produce it and appreciate it as well. And Because, you know, when it comes to things like that, uh, part of it has to be about 
what you like, you yeah. know, and, and not just what the market wants, you know, and, and that's our little way of still being able to, you know, make something that, that, that we like and, and know will sell. Uh, you know, it's okay that we don't, you know, make barrels and barrels and barrels of it. Uh, it's, it it's okay that we're just still making it and just didn't go away altogether. I want to talk about recipe development, and there, there's there's a lot of faith that comes for barrel-aged beers, that comes into making uh, barrel-aged beers. There's a lot of uh, cool things that you can try, some things that work, some things that, that don't. Uh, they can be very expensive to make, which is one of the reasons that they're expensive uh, when, when, they, when they get into the bottle. When you started out developing, uh, you know, let's just say a Braxis, um, where did you start? Uh, so, Abraxas, uh, as a concept, <coughs> started out with a contest that we did uh, on a blog that we used to have. <coughs> we don't do a blog anymore, but when we did, we were it's more... It's the future, you know. Yeah. Blogs are the future. I know. They, we, they'll save us all. It, maybe we'll come back to it at some point. <laughs> we were more ambitious, less busy, maybe. Uh, we we did, a, uh, did a blog, and uh, you know, we put it out there to our... our, our St. Louis beer fans, it was our first year, our first few months really, we tried to do crowdsource some ideas for, you know, what kind of beer would you like to see Perennial make? And, and then uh, we'll, and we'll put it to a vote, uh, maybe we'll make the beer idea that you have. And so someone had submitted an idea for a Mexican chocolate stout, which, you know, ours certainly wasn't the first. And, yeah. Uh, you, know, um, you know, there's, of course, Hunapu, and uh, you know, the last time I saw you was at Hunapu's. Yeah, that's right, uh, earlier this year. Absolutely. You know, I'm told I was there at least. You know, people can say, "Oh, I saw you there." It's like, "Hey, sure." You know, Westbrook also makes it fine. Oh, there's a, yeah. there, and I don't even want to start naming them because there's so many good ones out there. And so don't leave them out. And then we only have 45 minutes. Exactly, now. exactly. So, but uh, yeah, so the idea arose from uh, you know one of our fans, and then uh, you know, and that time Corey King of Side Project was was my head brewer and our head brewer, and um, you know he took on the. Uh, task of formulating the beer and uh, obviously made a very fantastic beer. Yeah. Um, you know, one that we continue to make. We, you know, we've tweaked it here and there to uh, to our needs as we've gone along. And you know, we've also installed another brew house. Uh, you know, in that time period too, we started out with a eight and a half barrel system, two vessel, and now we're on a three vessel, fifteen barrel system. And so, you know, in, in scaling it, we've had to uh, make some changes too. Uh, for instance, when we first made the beer, you know, had some extract in it. Now it's all malt. Um, but yeah, so Corey had developed that one, and you know I've developed a lot of our recipes over time. And uh, but the main thing for me as a a brewery owner and uh, manager of brewers, um, you know, which is kind of my early career at Goose Island too, in some ways, uh, is to try to get the best out of a lot of people. You know, I've had uh, the fortune of, of of having a lot of great formulators through uh, through our place. Uh, you know, Jonathan Moxie. Oh uh, yeah. Andy Hilly, Tim Duskit, and, uh, and Chris Canast put together a lot of great recipes for us as well. And, uh, and I continue to expect other other brewers uh, through our place to uh, also become great formulators as well. So. What's a recipe though that you developed? So so not reader submitted or not your blog post or anything along those lines. But like, what's a recipe that you developed um, that sort of vexed you for a while and then you finally nailed it? Like what was that moment like? Like for me personally, yeah. Um, you know, I so the uh, we're getting ready to come out with uh, well, another another format change. Uh, last year we uh, did a Brett series, uh, bottle conditioned Brett series beers that are dry hopped, 
uh, one called Owen, which is named after my middle child. That's a, a beer that I formulated. Uh, one called Working Title that Jonathan Moxley formulated. And then we have one coming out uh, here in the next month or two called Distant Land uh, that Chris Canast uh, has formulated as well. And so, uh, yeah, and so the, these beers uh, went from 750 last year down to their 375 singles is what we're going to launch them in this year. And uh, yeah, and so the second uh, round of that will be Owen again, three seven five. That's uh, that's a beer that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, it's really tropical and pineapple-y and uh, conditioned with Tanamyces, Clausinii, dry hopping mosaics. You know, we hear a lot about Brett and you know Tanamyces, and and it's it's it's. People like to use the word, people like the, 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 the taste of the beer. It, it, it is still largely, I think, misunderstood by a lot of drinkers. Like, it's it's a badge of honor if you can get through your first red beer. Uh, it's a badge of honor uh, when, when you finally get it. But I, I, I don't always know if, if, if people are getting it. And I, I, I struggle with it, um, depending on, on how it's used. Um, and, and obviously the yeast is going to do what the yeast wants to do. Uh, and you need to nudge it along in the right way. Um, but from a brewing standpoint, I mean, what is it like to use that yeast? Like, what are what are the pitfalls? What are the? I think, uh, yeah, you know, I think there's a spectrum. Of... I, I like that you're suppressing a smile right now. Yeah, there's a, there's certainly a spectrum of Brett expression in beers out there in the market. I think and. Uh, We've, um, as we've gone along, we've become a lot more patient about anything that we do that's bottle conditioned. Um, our Brett beers, uh, even if they're just completely stainless beers, uh, the ones that we do that we just bottle condition with Brett, uh, in other words, not in fermentation, just bottle conditioning, even, even those have a minimum of 60 days of, uh, of bottle conditioning before we release them. And some of them take longer than that. You know, it's all, we, so we've gotten a lot better at our uh, sensory evaluation of our beers that were uh, both ones that, you know, come out quickly, like, you know, um, say like Saison de Lee, or ones that are going to, you know, be at least 60 days in package uh, before we release them, you know, like an Owen or, or Distant Land. Uh, we've gotten, you know, a lot better at getting together every week as a group and doing sensory analysis on these beers to determine if they're ready or not. Yeah. And what I find is that a lot of beers out there, uh, the Brett beers, you know, sometimes are underdeveloped, sometimes the Brett is really stressed out, and you get some some of these uh, flavors that aren't maybe your favorite Brett flavors. And uh, my favorite type of Brett flavors are, you know, ones that are like, you know, if we're doing something that costs any eye and it's really tropical and pineapple-y and it's clean, uh, you know, it, somebody might think that it's not even a Brett beer, that maybe it's these guys put pineapple in this beer. It's very yeah. tropical. It's, and that's that's really cool. That's what we want. And then um, you know something like Working Title that, that Jonathan made, which is sort of his homage to Orval, um, where it has Bruxellensis and it's a little bit more of that sort of barnyardy Brett character, but but it comes through in a way that is very intentional. It's not you know, stressed out or underdeveloped barnyardy Bruxellensis character. Yeah, there's a big difference there, and so. Um, you know, we're just careful to cultivate that, and if it's not exactly the way we want it to be, we just keep sitting on it, or we dump it. Uh, that, that sometimes happens too. Do you still do you still dump beer? Oh yeah, we dump more beer than I would like to admit, but it's uh, we've just gotten a lot better at 
trying to quantify something that's subjective. You know, it's, it, it's you know, we kind of know ourselves as tasters. We collect data now on each of us as tasters and certain expected attributes and rating things. And uh, you know, it's not as simple as a yay or a nay. Um, you know, we we look at data and we say this beer is just not scoring right. Uh, it tastes a little bit off. Um, there might have been a time, you know, that in our past where we might have considered releasing it now. We're well, sure you have the devil on your shoulder who's saying, you know, yeah, but they'll buy it anyway. It's yeah, we've, we've really raised a standard there where it's, it, it's, it's sometimes difficult to not monetize something. You've put a lot of uh, raw materials, a lot of labor, and a lot of aging time and inventory, you know, holding it into and, uh, you know, tying up real estate and all of this. And you know, to let it go is a bummer because even letting it go is more labor because you're going to dump the beer out and you recycle the bottles and all of that stuff too. It's a, it's a, it's a bummer, but uh, it's the right thing to do if you care about your reputation. And I think more and more as, you know, we're seeing, you know, a thousand breweries a year open or whatever the rate is now, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, your reputation is, is all you have. Um, you know, if, if, if you care about sticking around. I'm, I'm curious though, just you must get that question from brewers as well, right? I, from, from new folks. So you, you've been around long enough now, your, your brewery has the reputation um, where there are young brewers who are seeking your advice. And, and does that come up at all of like, you know, to dump or not to dump and you, you hear this sort of hand-wringing, uh, devil on the shoulder. Do, do, do you get a lot of that? As, as, a, as a question from from someone yeah. else about an issue, yeah. And then my recommendation usually is to, if, if you can afford to let that go and you're not happy with this and has this thing, uh, you know, and it's and it's a you know something we've diagnosed sort of like through talking about it and tasting and saying, that's just never going to go away. Yeah. Not a hold on to it and see if that scrubs out or gets converted or something. Um, yeah, my recommendation is always to dump it if you can afford to, um, because what's more valuable than your reputation? Uh, you know, I mean, I know cash flow, payroll, and all these things also matter, but man. But it's also part of the education process as well, right? I mean, it's it's this is a difficult business that you're in, and there's going to be setbacks, and there's gonna there's gonna be pitfalls, and, and a lot of these are. I, I would hope that, that brewers use them as teachable moments, but sometimes, you know, I, I, I get the sense that, that, that they don't. Um, I think, yeah, they should. And so, you know, if, if you keep attempting to do something and, and, and don't have a good result, I think that should steer you away from doing that thing. And, and so that also can shape your identity, right? You find the things that you do really well that not everyone else can do well, and there's a market for that, that's your business, I, I think, it, it should be, you know. I mean, so with with that in mind, uh, if you could go back uh, and, and talk to yourself from seven years ago, uh, as you're getting ready to open up the brewery, what's the thing that you would say now that that you wish you heard back then? Invent the hazy IPA. <laughs> well, sure. I just back up the Brinks truck. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like a. Was it Back to the Future 2, I think? Yeah. And, uh, he has the, the sports The book. sports almanac? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, all right. Aside from inventing the hazy IPA, um, which I'm pretty sure came up uh, well before seven years ago. But yeah. yeah. Culture. 
but I mean, is, is, is there something that you've learned that is that you carry with you every day that was sort of learned the hard way? Yeah, I, I think I think just trying to be more patient and trying to be, you know, sometimes less aggressive on yields and stuff too. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, we've had some issues and you know with stouts where. Um, you know, we're trying to get a little bit better yield sometimes, uh, and, and doing everything exactly the way that we we feel good about. But you know, we're maybe we're getting a little bit too much yeast or you know, coagulant or whatever in some bottles, and we're trying to do everything we can to eliminate that issue. Because you know, people spend hard-earned money and a higher price point on a beer from us that they expect to be perfect, and if it's not perfect, it's, it pains me and uh, and and all of us, um, you know, at Perennial. And so you know. I think that uh, you know, just just always being willing to let more things go and always being willing to be more patient um, is a big part of quality. When it comes to quality as well, obviously the ingredients that you use uh, are, are paramount. Um, and Sump is one of those beers, uh, as far as coffee beers goes, that just stands out in my mind as one of the gold standards. Uh, certainly. What, what do you look for when it comes to coffee to use it? Like, what are some of the qualities that exist there? Well, we're very fortunate to have a, a partner like Sump for the coffee stout that we produce. Yeah. Because Scott Carey and, and Sump is, you know, sort of like this mad scientist of coffee. I mean, he, I, I've never met anyone as uh, quite as intense uh, as he is about roasting and, and, and brewing and cupping and, and all the processes that go into coffee selection, uh, all of it. And um, you know, working with him has been really eye-opening. You know, I used to think like, oh yeah, I'm a, I know a lot about coffee. I, I really enjoy drinking coffee. And then he, you know, he, you know, spending some time around him makes you realize you have a lot to learn about yeah. coffee. And it's, it's really, uh, you know, we've learned a lot from him. And, and we've uh, also learned a lot just doing this year after year that things that didn't come from him too uh, you know we used to get a lot of that green pepper sort of thing with uh, our bottles uh, you know as they age yeah uh, and, and coffee does share some of those characteristics I remember doing blind panels uh, for the old magazine that I worked for and I would always say like okay this is a stout that has something added to it and it would always be coffee and there would always be people who would say this smells like green bell pepper um, and it's when you're not thinking about coffee it's, it's one thing to say it and it comes to top of mind but it's yeah. another thing when you're doing it blind yeah and so you know trying to you know investigate that and figure out how we can eliminate that has you know made us has forced us to run a lot of experiments you know in terms of ratios how we process coffee how we soak it the time all these different things and so that we can try to arrive at something that uh, you know very much reduces that, um, and so you know, it's uh, coffee has been. Uh, it's not just a brew it and throw it in there kind of kind of ingredient. I, I've come to respect that ingredient probably more than any ingredient we work with. It's not a traditional beer ingredient. Yeah. So as we start to wrap up here, I, I'm I'm curious. Uh, you get to travel around a lot. You get to meet a lot of brewers. You get to drink a lot of beer. You get to to, to really think about the industry. What's your hope for beer? Oh, wow, that's a uh, that's a tough question. I uh, you know my hope for beer. Um, 
that's that's difficult. I, there's so many different, you know, as, as I've gone along too, I've met so many different types of beer drinkers that are nothing like the beer drinker that I am. And uh, I guess my hope is always that, um, well, the good people win or something like that. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I guess that the people, uh, you know, that the, the breweries, uh, I would like to see that the, the breweries that care about making something really great and that uh, try to provide good value and that care about their customers also are the ones that overcome cash flow issues and, you know, different other, you know, different things and, and end up doing well and succeeding. Uh, that, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, segment about um, people that really want to you know know who's brewing their beer and make that connection I'd like to see that uh, you know I'd like to see more customers try to find that connection with, with who's making their beer because I think that that kind of takes care of itself and that sort of sense of you know people that care about their customers yeah um, that those guys do well so one more the owner the brewer the founder of perennial in St. Louis, Missouri. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's a real pleasure. Uh, people can find you guys online at www.perennialbeer.com. Uh, we're also Perennial Beer on uh, Twitter and Instagram and uh, Perennial Artists and Ales on Facebook. And if you have questions for me, guests you'd like to hear on the program, uh, questions that you'd like answered uh, by our guests, you can reach out to me. I'm John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, not to be confused with the guy from Goose Island, at beerandbrewing.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at John underscore Hall, where the conversation continues there. Check out Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, where you can subscribe to our print editions. You can learn how to be a better homebrewer. You can learn about the brewers that are making a difference in the world today. And thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Cheers. Save time and money using BrewBy5 production software at your craft brewery. BrewBy5 software is a simple and affordable solution for tracking daily production, managing inventory, planning production, and compiling your federal reports. Learn more at fx5solutions.com or by calling 720-638-4958. BrewBy5 production software, brewery management squared away. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.